a second if you want to read with me. It's, I'm going to be reading in the ESV for the record, so if you see any discrepancies, that would be why. Uh, here we go. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Okay. Thank you for reading that with me. Uh, So I have uh, liked girls for a really, really long time. I was actually kind of an early bloomer. Uh, I, I, we, we can go back. I can, we could do this. I could, we could get a whiteboard. I could give you a timeline that goes all the way back to preschool of the girls that I've liked. Like I said, I was, I was an early bloomer. In fact, I think the preschool, I don't quote me, but I think the preschool was called Wee Willie Winkle. Yep. In Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, and I, rem- I remember every single one from that day forward. And it's been getting me into trouble from the very beginning. On one occasion, the very first girl that I liked, she was a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. Uh, to impress her, I stuck my face in between two wooden posts to show how strong I was in getting my head out of the two wooden posts which, of course, did not work. I was stuck. She went and had to get a teacher uh, to help me get out. This, this is just a part of my existence from, from a very, very young boy all the way to this day. This is as long as I have memories. And so I want to tell you this at the forefront. My cards are on the table. Anytime that I have to study or even preach about this sort of a topic, it is a painful disciplinary process for me. Okay, so anything that comes up in this that stings for you, I assure you, has been stinging me for the last month as well. All right, so I just, I just want you to know that. I know it's kind of a cliche where preachers will say, hey, I'm with you, but I, I gave you an example. This is true for me from, from essentially birth. All right, so we'll, 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 we'll move into it. I love when social science catches up to Scripture. Um, It's actually a little bit twisted in me, but I love it when something that we've had access to for hundreds of years now gets confirmed by hours upon hours of study and interviews and number crunching. So in the mid-1960s, a couple of academics put pen to paper regarding an idea that people tend to know intuitively. And that idea is that people engaging in unhealthy behaviors can and should seek to replace that behavior 
with a more acceptable behavior that achieves the same or a similar result. It is called, unsurprisingly, replacement behavior. Okay? So, some people have critiqued that idea as overly simple, but the overall idea has stood the test of time. You see it take place before this service, after the service, all around you. When parents deal with one of their children that is misbehaving, I know your child never would, but the other children that are misbehaving, when, when they're dealing with that, the, the, the goal is almost never punishment for punishment's sake. You don't want to have to discipline your kids outright. So, the goal is typically to help them find a healthier behavior to achieve the same basic thing. For instance, if one of your kids says your name over and over and over because it gets a response which stimulates their mind, stimulates their brain, then they're going to keep doing it. And so parents instinctively will resort to things that they know. So they'll, they'll go back to their, their childhood days and they say, okay, today, if you want to get a hold of mommy, you need to raise your hand. Okay, it's, it's a different behavior sought to replace the one that was causing issues, but essentially gives them the same result. Right? The, that, that pathway that formed in the child's mind is being course-corrected. It's, it's being given a, given a slightly different path to achieve the same basic result. It's really quite simple, and many of us do it regularly without ever thinking about it. Okay, so interestingly, that basic idea can be found consistently throughout Scripture, though with a discernibly spiritual bent. Colossians 3 is the famous one. It's it, put off these things, put on these things in light of who you are in Jesus. And we see it here again. Uh, the, the language is a, a little bit less obvious, but you see it happen in Ephesians 4, which you preach, preached about. All right, Dave. <laughs> which was preached about a few weeks ago. And we're still dealing with the implications of that here in Ephesians 5. And thankfully, within Christianity, there is more to this idea than a mere psychological or social exchange of behaviors. And we're going to try to unpack that uh, here just a little bit. So, as we get going into the text, would you do me a favor and bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you uh, for this night. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you're honest with us. And thank you that your honesty with us is ultimately in our best interest, even when it stings, even when it hurts. But God, you desire better for us than we desire for ourselves. And so we ask that you'll help us to see that. Help us to feel that and know that in a new way tonight so that ultimately we're drawn to your Son, Jesus Christ, because in Jesus we find joy and fulfillment. So God, use me now as broken of a vessel as I am to communicate what you're talking about here in Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the reason I had them put up verses 1 and 2 was merely transitional. It was to draw your attention to something. Verses 1 and 2, you can see it. Follow God's example. It's talking about Jesus. Just as, Jesus, just as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, it, it, it draws our attention to the selflessness of Jesus. And then in verse 3, in what I think is a very natural transition, Paul switches to the opposite of that. What is the opposite of the selflessness of Jesus who, who thought of us in his actions? Well, the opposite is viewing other people as objects in service of us. 
quite the contrary to what Jesus did. We tend to be selfless. And so that's where Paul transitions his thought in verse 3. Okay? And you see it up here. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. And those Greek words are a little bit more complex than those ideas. Porneia and akarth- uh, excuse me, akatharsia, those two things cover all types of sexual sin. The former, the first one, which you see as sexual immorality, that covers both a physical, or excuse me, that covers... The internal. That covers anything in your heart that is manifested immorally in a sexual way. The latter covers both a physical and moral uncleanness. So, in essence, any sort of sin, internal or external, that has misunderstood and misapplied God's sexual ethic, that should not, as the ESV puts it, that should not be named among followers of Jesus or the NIV. It says there shouldn't even be a hint of that in the midst of Christ's followers. And if you are anything like me, that hurts. That sting, that pinches a bit. I have historically struggled with lust. So under this banner, I stand condemned. But as Mike discussed last week, Jesus paid for that. And we're going to kind of come back around to that later. And there's not a single one of us for the record that doesn't stand condemned under that. God's sexual ethic, as you see in Scripture, is big and beautiful and difficult and worthwhile. And throughout our lives, every single one of us internally or externally has fallen short of the beauty therein. And then... You see him transition slightly, but it's actually related. Paul brings up covetousness or greed. And more generally, this can be translated as a desire for advantage. A desire for advantage. It's not quite so simple as wanting someone else's stuff. It encompasses the worship of control and achievement. Both, again, of which describe me quite well. And, this is where it gets particularly fun, if you fast forward a couple of verses, you see it there, to verse 5. It says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, so you're seeing him restate his thoughts. And then parenthetically it says, Such a person is an idolater. Such a person is an idolater. And this word is rich, rich with meaning. Um, Because it's true of all people. Idolatry simply is the worship of an image. It's to place one's worship on the wrong thing. And I know it's been talked about in here before, but we've got to do it just briefly. The default of the human heart is one of worship. We, by our very nature, place weight, we place value on stuff. We ascribe worth to things. We were designed to do that. We were designed to do it to God. But we actually place that worth on other things. And my, the, the most vivid explanation of it is Paul speaking to uh, the Christians in and around Rome. He says, 
For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So we all, simply by looking outside, simply by looking at one another, we can know that God exists. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, here it is, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, So in our, in our nature, in our sinful, broken nature, we do not want God. We just don't. We want to be God and we want His stuff. We want to be God and we want His stuff, and that's at the heart of idolatry. We ascribe worth, or said another way, we worship the stuff that God has created rather than Himself. And that, friends, is at the root of the behaviors being described here in sexual immorality and impurity and greed. Because we actually don't want God, we want the things that He created, we want His people. We want romantic relationship. We want our sexuality. We want stuff. We want a nice house or a decent living or we want to be able to pursue our dreams. That is where our heart tends to naturally bend. So we'll worship family, which is not a bad thing. We'll worship punk rock. And that's not a bad thing. We'll worship our dreams of art or our dreams of business, which aren't bad things. And we end up motivated by worship of sex and achievement. And if that isn't true of kind of urban Western culture, then I think we're being dishonest with ourselves. And it's certainly true of me. As I mentioned, I can, like I said, I can give you a list of the women I've been interested in romantically. And I can give you detailed lists of my dreams in the context of ministry, both of which I am prone to worship rather than God himself. And that's what we see kind of going on here in this. And Paul doesn't stop there even. He reiterates a point you guys discussed a few weeks ago. In verse 4 he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And you've heard this before. In Ephesians 4, something very similar. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. Okay, and you see the the more obvious dichotomy there in in chapter 5, verse 4, where he says, Let no filthiness, let no vulgarity, let that not come out. Instead, let it be thankfulness. Instead, let it be thankfulness. And based on the immediate context, there's probably a little bit of a sexual undertone regarding the, the, the discussions, regarding the conversation here. Let no vulgarity come out. Instead, let it be thankfulness. And this rings true to your experience. It rings true to my experience. The people in your life that tend to suck energy out of you tend to be negative and vulgar. And the people in your life that add energy and breathe life into you, those people tend to be inherently encouraging and grateful. 
This rings true to our day-to-day experience, the, the negative behavior and the replacement one. And then uh, he, he kind of puts the final nail in the coffin in verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So again, this verse is condemnation for me and it's condemnation for you. We do not and cannot check this box. We just can't. Only Jesus checks this box. But instead of turning to Jesus, often what we do is what Paul talks about here in verse 6. And, and I apologize, I tend, to, I tend to ignore my overall points in terms of naming them. Um, but, but basically you've got two points going on in these 14 verses with an intermission in the middle. The, the first point is that, that Jesus, is that this life saves you from something. And then there's an intermission, and then we'll get what it saves you into. So from something into something else. But we hit this intermission in verse 6, which I enjoy greatly because I think it, again, rings true to modern culture quite well. What is the temptation? What is the temptation when you or people you love struggle with these things? When you see people around you struggle with sexual immorality or you see them struggle with the sexual ethic as outlined in Scripture, what is it when you see people who are pursuing their dreams or pursuing good things over against God Himself? Often the temptation isn't to turn to Jesus. The temptation is to water down truth. That's typically where we go. And it's fascinating to me that that's true because it it was true in Paul's context because it's still true today. Read verse 6 with me. Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. And this is crazy to me because Paul stops his train of thought to reiterate that point. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So obviously, people in the context to which Paul was writing, those people tended to, in the discussion of sex, in the discussion of money and achievement, they tended to lessen truth in the same way that we do today. So, quick story for you. I, I mentioned this last time I preached in here. I, uh, I get in trouble a lot at my church for my sermons. And that can be confirmed by Tina or Dave or anybody who is around Faith Church enough to hear me preach. Uh, I tend to get in trouble. And my most recent sermon, uh, which was last month, it was in April, was uh, from the first five verses of the book of Acts. We're just starting a series. And I'd been, I'd been recently convicted just about some things with my preaching, so I, I'll, I'll admit I went pretty hard in the paint. I, I, I kind of got after it a little bit with our people. But here's what's interesting. The, the people that I typically piss off with my sermons liked this one, which was news. It was kind of fun. In the aftermath of the sermon, those people came up to me and they're like, yeah, yeah, that one, that'll work. That, one, that one's pretty good. Um, and so I went for a week thinking, okay, we may have crossed that bridge. You know, we, we may finally have accomplished something collectively, Faith Church and I. Uh, except, a little over a week after I preached it, I heard the same undercurrent 
that always exists in the church world. It exists at SCUM. It exists at other churches. I, I heard in passing that there were some people that didn't like my sermon, which was interesting because it didn't jive with what I understood, for, with what I'd been told previously. And, and interestingly... The thing that my people, our people, didn't like was that I, in the conclusion of the sermon, my, our church is just barely into Aurora, just a couple hundred yards into Aurora. In the conclusion of my sermon, I began to discuss what the implications of it were for literally Aurora, which is a place, which is a place not a lot of people want to be. I'm getting head nods because most of you live in Denver. You guys know better. Uh, but, but most of the people, even in our own midst, don't love the idea of being in Aurora for a list of reasons. And I, 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 as best I could, I qualified my language and, and was as gentle as I thought I could be while still being true to it. But there were a few people really, really upset that I spoke about Aurora in negative terms because that's their home, which, fair enough. Fast forward a few days. And a couple of older ladies and I uh, had, and Tina was witness to this, a couple of older ladies and I uh, had a reconciliation conversation about my sermon. And they sat down with me, and they really wanted me to understand how much they were bothered by my sermon, which I understood. I, I owned that and apologized for that. We continued our conversation, and they got to the place where they were satisfied after about 20 minutes. So in their satisfaction, they went on for 10 minutes to explain to me all the ways that Aurora had changed for the worse. And it was then that I began to struggle because they, weren't, they didn't actually think I was wrong. They were upset that I said it. And that's a fascinating distinction. Because, friends, truth is good and beautiful and right even when it's hard. And faith church, the church that I work at, in order for us to pursue the good, right, beautiful things that God has for us in Aurora, in order for us to get there, we've got to reckon with the fact that not very many people want to be there. That's just going to be a part of our kingdom mission where God has placed us. And if we can't get to the truth, then we will be unable to do the things to which God has called us. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Because the truth here in this text, the idea which the text calls empty or alternatively vain, That idea that one can actively walk in these sins and be in right standing with God is just plain wrong, according to Scripture. Lives that are marked by these behaviors probably aren't saved. And that, again, that hurts for me. That requires me to look inside. But that is the lie that our culture will try to sell us in exchange for the truth, that ultimately all paths on the mountain ultimately lead to the summit. And at least according to Scripture, that's not true. 
At least according to the Bible, that's not the case. Universalism is a lie. And it's argued against definitively by Paul because obviously he saw it here. And one more thing on this, on this particular verse. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Mike described um, the, 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 the love of God in depth and reconciled these sorts of commands with God's love. And all of that is definitively true. And I want to add just a hair to that. God's wrath, which you see mentioned in verse 6, which we tend not to like, God's wrath is irrevocably connected to His love. Okay, his wrath and his love are connected. And I know that to be true because love and hatred have kind of a weird relationship. To love something, to love anything, is to necessarily hate something else. So if you truly love somebody, then you hate the thought of losing them or you hate the, the, the idea of seeing them get hurt. So for God to love His children, He must necessarily hate losing them and seeing them get hurt. That evokes His just wrath. Those things are connected as you see them here. It says God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient because He loves them. Those two things are connected. And that ends kind of the intermission. So you had from something, you had this intermission about universalism, and then you have into something else. And then the key word there at the beginning of verse 7, you all see it, therefore, okay? Given the things that we have discussed to this point then, do not be partners with them. Don't be partners with them. The New American Standard uses the word partaker. And this is interesting because based on the rest of what Scripture says, we know that we ought to pursue people that are of the world. That's the whole premise for the vision at Scum of the Earth Church. You see it right here. You want to be an outpost on the kingdom of God. Pursuing those in the world who need Jesus. And the distinction is that we ought not participate. Pursue, don't participate. And that's really at the heart of the Greek word there. Don't participate in the very same things that God has freed us from. Don't participate in those same things. And it's here in verse 8 where we finally get to see how Christianity is more than simply behavior modification. How it's more than putting off a behavior and putting on a behavior. And it adds such depth and beauty that I don't think there's a better alternative than Christianity. And, and we can argue that face-to-face if, if that's a conversation anybody wants to have. Throughout this letter, and throughout all of Paul's letters, Paul uses purposefully loaded language given the context. So in the same way, you've got, to, you've got to kind of remove yourself for a second from that and think about our culture in the same way that our culture is ruggedly individualistic and what that means for identity, which means we tend to look for identity in our sexuality, in our gender, in our ideas for work, in our ideas for where society should go. That is where we tend to find identity. Previous... And other cultures in today's uh, world, they tend to focus on different things for identity. 
Not everybody thinks like us. And so here's another way to say that. Your perception of the good life or the full life is starkly different than other people across the world. And it's certainly different than the people to whom Paul was directly writing. And Paul's choice of language then becomes really interesting. In chapter 5, verse 8, which is right there on the board, it says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And that says, live as... And can, would you guys do me the favor of reading that word out loud? Live as... Nice. That was actually pretty good. Live as children of light. Or as the ESV says, walk as children of the light. If you go back to the beginning of the text in verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In chapter 2, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here's why this matters. The people to whom Paul was writing had natural sin proclivities or tendencies, just like you and I, but the places from which they got their identity were quite a bit different. The places from which they got their identity were quite a bit different. The two primary places in which people placed their identities were family and country. And you still see some of that today, but to a much lesser extent than it would have been then. Family and country. Your identity was your family. Your ability to give birth and to pass along a legacy. Your identity was the, was the vitality and stability of one's family. One's future was wrapped up in his or her family, and that it seems so contrary to how we currently think about things. All of the American dream says you can be whatever you want to be as long as you work for it. That's at the heart of how we think about our futures. It's at the heart of how I think about my future in ministry. But for them, it was family. It was, do I have sons to pass along all of our stuff, all of our accomplishments? Will they bury me in beautiful ways and remember me across time? That was what it meant to have your identity in something. Similarly, country. Often, your worldview, which is your belief system, we're going to hit that in a second, often that was dictated by where you lived. Which again, rubs so contrary to our experience. We like to think that we make those decisions for ourselves. But you see it uh, vividly. One of my favorite ones is in the book of Ruth, where Ruth has these two daughters-in-law, and the husbands die, and the daughters have to decide, okay, well, what are we going to do with the rest of our lives? And the one daughter, the one of the books, in many ways about Ruth, says, okay, I'm going to go with you. <laughs> and, and Naomi says, no, 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 don't do that. You're, you're ruining your own future. And she says, no, I'm going to come with you and I'm going to adopt your God as my God. It's a worldview change. It's an, it's an expression of faith. The other one, whose name was Orpah, says, okay, uh, she says, okay, I am going to go back. And it says that she went back to her other gods. Your place often dictated what you believed. So one's identity then the people to whom Paul was writing, their identity would have been very connected to their understanding of family and their understanding of country and place. All of those things would have been completely... And, and I want to define terms here quickly. One's identity is the nature of his or her being. 
Okay, it answers the question of why you exist. Who are you at the core of who you are? And the answer to that question dictates a ton of realities in your life. And you know that to be true by the people around you. The things that define them, a romantic relationship, a job, a desire, those things tend to dictate the decisions that they make and then the behaviors that they walk in. And you see, Christianity does not merely offer you a new set of behaviors to fill the old ones. Though, in all likelihood, the behaviors it would call you to are probably more healthy, a better view of sex, thanksgiving rather than vulgarity, etc. But that's not the point. The point of Christianity is a new identity in Jesus Christ. So you see Paul using that language. Children, child, household of God, citizens. Things that those people often would have naturally attached themselves to, that's the language that he uses because it's a new identity. And that identity influences everything. It changes your worldview. As Tim Keller describes a worldview, it's a belief that shapes all other beliefs. Okay? So an effective worldview means that your doctrine and your ethics are aligned. Your beliefs and your behaviors are aligned. And frankly, only Christianity offers... A holistic worldview. It's the only one. Only Christianity offers an identity that can answer all of those questions in Jesus Christ. So that's the new thing that you then see him go on to describe. Paul says that Christianity takes you from something into something else. They are descriptions of the before and after through Jesus Christ. Or as Paul metaphorically uses, they are the previous darkness and the new light of people in Christ. And, that, and then it starts to get really fun. Because from there, you start to see what does it, and it goes past these verses. But what does it look like to have this identity? What does that start to look like in practice in your day-to-day life? And of course, uh, I've, I've got to cover this. You can't earn that. Right? Just switching the behaviors doesn't get you the new identity. Paul says we are light. We are light. You see, when Jesus died and absorbed your sinfulness, your darkness, the very things that were described earlier, he purchased your new identity. He bought it, and then he secured it uh, by granting you the Holy Spirit. He gives you his spirit, which motivates and empowers this new you. And this new you leads to a new lifestyle. It leads to new beliefs, which lead to new behaviors. And that's where we get to continue having fun here. So in verse 8 it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And he begins to describe what it looks like to live as children of the light. In verse 10 it says, Find out what pleases the Lord. Okay, so this is the first of two implications of your new identity in Jesus. This is so fascinating because the idea, it looks like, okay, now that, you're, now that God has saved you, do what God says. 
That's what it looks like. But that's not really what's going on here. The idea is an ongoing testing and learning and finding that which pleases the Lord. It's, this knowledge is not a mere intellectual acquisition and assent. This knowledge is person-shaping. It's holistic. This is where your beliefs are shaped by your identity and your behavior follows suit. In your new identity as children of the light, you are given access to the God of the universe and He is infinite. There will always be more of Him to encounter and to love and to know. You are freed to walk in light of that. You no longer need to be marked by bondage to sin. You can live in pursuit of God Himself. So whereas you once may have walked in the darkness of sexual sin, now you get the joy and and fulfillment of being in relationship with God. Whereas you may have once spoken in vulgar ways, now you get to worship God in thankfulness for all that He's done for you. You're freed to this new identity that looks quite a bit different than the behaviors of old. Birthed out of a heart change. Okay, so that's the first thing you see. You see it in verse 10. And find out what pleases the Lord. And by direct implication, verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So the first implication of being a child of God, of having a new identity, the first implication is that ongoing relationship, that deepening relationship with Jesus. And the second implication is removing the darkness. The second implication is exposing the darkness. A preacher I recently heard just a few weeks ago, he said... Christians in the West, that's us, for those of us that are believers. For Christians in the West, they need to rescue justice from the world. Because, you know this, the the, the world has won the rhetorical battle for justice. They just have. Right now, Christians are considered a hindrance to justice. And incidentally... Right after describing a deepening relationship with the Lord, Paul explains that our identity as children will expose darkness. That's what light does. So the nature of walking in this light is exposing that which is in the darkness. The church ought to be a place where justice is actively pursued, though not as an end in itself. Our desire to bring about justice is rooted in the character of of the Godhead and our nature as children of light. So our justice must be ferociously tied to the truth that we see in Scripture and not the spirit of the day. So the way our culture pursues justice, though welcomed in some ways, is unhealthy in others. And only a deepening relationship with Jesus and knowledge of Scripture will allow us to pursue justice rightly. Expose the darkness And then, verse 13, But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Potentially, our light leads to more light. Where light shines, there's no more darkness. 
our nature creates more light. We, we're called to help expand the kingdom. And, and here's the deal. I know the leaders at this church. I don't know that many of you personally, but I know the leaders of this church are walking in this. Spending time on South Broadway, spending time with Derby people, opening a Derby shop, going to shows, the list goes on and on, going to dark places, being a light, and allowing God to create more light. That is the result of our identity in Jesus. And that brings us to the final verse, where we kind of wrap things up. Verse 14, Awake, O sleeper! And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This poetic verse combines a bunch of ideas uh, that you see in the Old Testament. It's not a direct quote, and we sing it in some worship songs. If you are a Christian, you've been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus, and you've been granted His Spirit inside of you. Here's the thing. You have everything that you need. Your identity has already been marked. You're freed to walk in it. You've got the power of God Himself inside of you. You don't need more things. You don't need more from other people. God, the the God of the universe, is inside of you, empowering and bringing this about. Your new identity already exists. And now you're free to get to walk in that. And that's, that's what's going on here at SCUM. I know that to be true, and I pray that that'll be true of uh, the church that I work at out in Aurora. Um, and, and let's continue to pray that that is true uh, in, our, in our midst, that, that we're marked ultimately by our identity in Jesus, not some behavior change, not some worldly defined justice, but by what Jesus is doing in and through us. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you uh, that you love us. Thank you that you're honest with us and that the things that you call us to are better than the things that we so desperately cling to. That, God, you want better for us than we want for ourselves. Help us to know that at the core of our being. Holy Spirit, guide us. Guide our thoughts. Continue to grow us. Continue to help us to walk in this new identity, to not merely think about it, to not merely assent to it, but God, that You would empower us to be that, that You would empower Scum of the Earth Church to be the light, to walk as children of light in this neighborhood, in this city. That You would draw the scum of the earth to You and create more light because You can do that. We pray these things for the sake and the beauty and the glory of your Son's name, Jesus. Amen.